G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Welcome. Thanks for joining me again. We're continuing a new series called Hey Up There. It's about how God constantly calls us to look up there, to turn our eyes and hearts to Him. In this episode, we'll hear the rest of Pastor Jeff's message from Matthew chapter 5, or the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably one of Jesus' most famous speeches. If you missed the first part of this message, just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Let's hear the rest of this message now with Pastor Jeff. For much of the 20th century... I've seen this statement again and again in my reading, in my conversation. I hear it by those who have abandoned the church but still want to talk about goodness and they find it difficult. I also read it in books that try to keep a sense of morality while debunking all religion. They also find that difficult. I still hear it among young people when I tell them that I still believe in the church, that it's the hope of the world with all of its sin and frailty and imperfection. It's still the hope of the world. And it goes like this. Here's the modern statement. We are modern people. We don't believe a lot of the old beliefs, miracles and the resurrection stuff. We are modern people. We live in a scientific age and so much of the Christian dogma, we just throw it out. But wait, the Sermon on the Mount. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful ethical blueprint of how we all should live. Yeah, well, I'm still waiting on somebody to live that way. (laughs) See what they're saying? We don't need all the dogma, all the Christian dogma. We don't need your, all we need to do is live by the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I find that funny. You're, you're obviously not laughing, but that. <laughs> Virginia Stem Owens is a writer and an author who taught literature at a number of prestigious universities. She recently gave her students an assignment. It was very easy. Step one, read the Sermon on the Mount. Step two, write an essay. She was totally shocked at what came back, although she writes later she shouldn't have been. Many of them had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Most of them had never read it. And all of them, almost all of them were unacquainted with it. So you know what their essay responses were? I hate the Sermon on the Mount. One person said, one student, I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. 
I don't feel safe. <laughs> Another student said, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, inhuman statements I've ever heard. And Virginia Owens concludes by writing this finally. Biblical illiteracy has come to the point where people in America are able to respond to Jesus Christ without filtering him through 2,000 years of cultural haze. Honest, ignorant ears can finally hear the Sermon on the Mount as it really is, and they hated it. It was horror. It was disgusting. You know what she's saying? She's saying, you and I as Christ followers, we've been able to soften the Sermon on the Mount for far too long now. Now we've got a whole new generation that never heard of it, never read it, and when they read it, they read it as it really is, and it makes them mad because they can't live up to it. Anyone who says, you don't need doctrine or dogma, you don't need the church, you just need to live by the principles Jesus gave during the Sermon on the Mount, and it will be good with you and God, anyone who ever says that has never read the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you look at what the sermon really says, and you start to grasp it, you know what you're going to do? Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Help me, God. Please take it away. <laughs> I was out in Palm Springs not too long ago with a, a friend of mine, and there was a golf tournament on, so we got to sit right on the bank at PGA West and watch all the pros warm up. And after about 10 minutes, I just got depressed. And my friend Brett Mullen could tell I was depressed. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, man, what is that? I can't do that. I had this, I had this illusion that I was good. But look at that. I can't live up to that. I just wanted to quit. I quit. That's it. I'm not doing this anymore. See, the reason we do that is because when we read and understand the words of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're honest, that's exactly how you expect people around you to live. You've expected people to live that way. You've been demanding that everybody else should live that way. And down deep in your heart, you know you should be living that way, but you ain't living that way. And at the same time, it's so detailed, it highlights motives as well as action that you start to think nobody can escape. And in other words... This is what you know life should be. This is what you know you should be like. But you fall infinitely short. You can't even come close to it. Unless you lie to yourself, if you truly try to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it will condemn you, expose you, it will disgust you. Because you'll realize, man, who can do that? It's unfair, it's unrealistic. The problem is if you see the beauty of it and the horror of it at the same time, what in heaven's name can you do? Now, this is where it gets good. This is step one of the Sermon on the Mount series. Imagine for over 400 years, the people of Israel have not heard from God. 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, no prophet, no teacher, no preacher, no words. And Jesus comes on the scene and it's 30 years before he really says anything. He says a few things in the temple, but it's 30 years before he starts his teaching ministry. And now he's about ready. He's ready. He's been baptized. He's accepted the role of Messiahship. He's been tempted in the desert. And now he goes out and he's going to preach his first sermon, okay? So it's been a long time. Jesus knows the primary question on everybody's mind before he preaches his first word. And it's this, dude, what do we need to do to be right with God? Because we're all in trouble. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth, the Sermon on the Mount, is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, please hear me. Now, this is the part of the sermon that was 30 minutes long that I cut to 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, so you better listen to the 30 seconds. 
I have made it a purpose of my life to study every world religion and philosophy. I've not gotten to them all, but I can tell you this. There is nothing, nothing even close to what Christ teaches. Okay? I didn't say there weren't other good points. I said there's nothing close to this fundamental doctrine. Because when most people approach God, here's how they do so. Even the atheist. The atheist will tell you what I don't believe in God. But just in case there happens to be a God, I'm good anyway. Okay. Bertrand Russell was asked, what are you going to do if you meet God? He goes, well, I'm going to tell him that. He didn't give me enough information. But I was good anyway. That's what, he, that's what Bertrand Russell, the noted atheist, said. So atheist believes this. I don't believe there's a God, but if there turns out to be one, I'm okay. Because, yeah, I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things too. And not only the atheists, but most people, all people, all people in the religious world will tell you this. Well, you know, I know I've got some dead over here and I've done some bad things and pretty bad things, but I've also done some good. So it's not like I'm destitute. I got some money in the bank. And I got some good things to bring too. And so I may have a lot of debts. I got it. And I've done a lot of bad things. I got that too, but I got a lot of assets too. So I'm good. I'm not perfect. How many times have you heard somebody, well, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But I've done some bad things, but I'm still do the good in the bank. I'll admit, I do need some forgiveness. And I really would like you, God, now that I know that you're real, I really would like you to forgive me for the bad things. But I got some good things too over here. So consider this. I bring that to the table. Only those who are Christians or those who are becoming Christians will tell you they got no money in the bank. They got nada. Nothing. They are completely and utterly bankrupt. To say that you have no money in the bank means that not only have you sinned, I mean, come on, everybody says, yeah, I've sinned. Everybody believes they've sinned. But you're also admitting that even most of your good deeds are done not with pure motives, not out of good intentions, that most of our good deeds are done to keep control of my life, to show that I'm worthy of blessing, to earn my own self-respect, to get people to like me, to see me, to honor me. So Jesus just breaks that with the first words out of his mouth. They haven't heard from a teacher or a prophet for hundreds of years. And the first thing Jesus says, you want to know how to get in the kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? Blessed are those who know they got nothing in the bank. They got nothing. And even their good stuff is often done by impure, improper motivation. Poor in spirit is not an economic statement. It's a spiritual metaphor of bankruptcy. I have no collateral. I have no backup funds. There's nothing I can bring to the table. Nothing. It's not that I don't, it's not that I have a poor resume. I got no resume. And my only hope is mercy. Only a Christian can say that because everybody else thinks that's ludicrous. That's why I think that was one of the clinchers for me when I was younger. No man can make up the doctrine of justification by faith. (laughs) You wouldn't do that because you want to control things. You want to say, well, if I do this, this, and this, then God will accept me. That's where religion comes from. So I'm going to give you this list. No man would ever make up the doctrine of justification by faith. So... Jesus says, are you poor in spirit? Do you know you got nothing? And are you mourning? That's the next beatitude. What's mourning? Well, again, it's metaphorical. Mourning is the spirit of repentance. You know you're spiritually bankrupt. You know you don't have a lot of good. And even the good that you do have, you know you have a lot of debts, but even the good you have is not real true good because it's not done purely out of a spiritual 
honest motivation. And so you get to that point when you realize, man, you start mourning. I'm sad because I'm in big trouble. And then he says, are you meek? And meekness is what? The recognition that you are powerless. So a Christian doesn't come to God saying, I'm really bad at all these things. God, I know, but I'm, I'm good over here. So I'm good here. I don't need you there. But over here where I'm bad, I need some forgiveness. But I really deserve it because I got money in the bank. <laughs> That's not what a Christian does. A Christian says, man, I see now how even my good deeds often have impure motives. Outside of your complete grace and mercy, I have no hope, God. The only way I can be saved is by absolute grace. Come on. I read, come on. I went through those 10, 40,000 foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you even do one of them? Come on. To, to, to look at a woman improperly is adultery? Some of you did that before you got here in the parking lot. <laughs> well, let's just be honest. Now, you came today and you're new and you think, man, these people. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of sinners. <laughs> Are you hungry and thirsting after righteousness? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to be filled. So a person who is a Christ follower or who is becoming a Christ follower actually hungers and thirsts after holiness and righteousness. The problem with the word righteousness is it's a non-starter. We don't really have a definition in our world today. But the Sermon on the Mount, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to give you a definition of righteousness. It's a life of love, equality, and unconditionality, and integrity, full of integrity and word and deed and sexuality and generosity and justice and trust and inner peace. So how did the students of Mrs. Owen's literary class respond? The same way most people respond when they are confronted with a righteousness revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. They say, this is unrealistic. It makes me feel bad. I want nothing to do with it. But here's the strange thing. If you're a Christian, you read and study the Sermon on the Mount and you love it. But then there's a horror to it because you know you don't live it. You with me? So you love it. Oh, this is good. Oh, no, this is bad. This is good. No, this is bad. But you want it. <laughs> You want it. The words crawl into your paradigms and they cause an explosion of reality and truth. You, find, you finally see what real love and real justice and real mercy and real peace and real forgiveness and real purity. You discover you were playing in the puddles. Now you see the ocean. You were playing in the dirt. Now you see the mountains. I should live like this. I should be bold and happy and loving and just. I should be like this, but I'm not. But I really want to be. <laughs> Only Christians know they don't just need a little bit of help, man. They need a savior. They're starving for righteousness. They hunger for it. Now, if you're truly dying of hunger, what do you do? Do you plant a garden? No. You can't wait for the food to grow. You'll be dead. Do you go out and get a job, earn some money, and try to go to Burger King? No. You don't, if you're literally starving, you need a gift, right? You need a gift right now. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who come knowing they got no hope, no job, no garden to be planted. They need grace. Now, the, the irony is 
that the true Christ follower is not somebody that looks at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, I'm not even going to try because you can't do it anyway, and it really doesn't bother me, so I'm just going to go on with my life. There's a problem with that person. They're, they're called grace abusers. The real Christ follower looks at it and says, man, oh, I love that. I really wish I could do that, but I don't, but I want it. And then they discover in the gospel, which is why it's good news how to get it. Paul got it in Philippians. He said, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own based on my own moral efforts, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. I want a righteousness that... that, not of my own or moral efforts, but that comes from God through faith in Christ. What is that? Remember, there's one of two ways to be righteous before God. One, keep the law perfectly, which none of you can do. And if you think you can, you're delusional. And if you think you've got a lot of money in the bank that overrides all your debts, you're still delusional. See, people say that Christians are delusional. I'm telling you, they're the only ones with a reality on life. We know how bad we are. <laughs> and we know we need help. So you either keep the law perfectly or you pay the penalty for breaking it. And God said, I'm going to have my son pay your penalty, past, present, future. So that when I see you, I look at you not as having offended the law, but I see you as righteous having paid the penalty for breaking it because you've claimed my son as your savior. That's the righteousness. And then, then Paul says in Romans, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. The righteous will live by faith. The power of God, not your power to be good, God's power to save you from yourself. Now, there, there are some... There are some Religious police in the audience. And right now they're thinking, oh, pastor, you're going to tell them they should be good people anyway. You're missing the point. The real Christ follower still pursues the Sermon on the Mount and that kind of life. Why? Not to be righteous. You pursue it because you are righteous. Because what happens is when you enter the kingdom through a low door and you realize you need, you need grace and mercy and forgiveness, then the Bible says, Christ comes on the inside and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And suddenly you find you got new passions. So the genuine Christ follower who came through a low door gets the spirit of Christ. And now you see the Sermon on the Mount. You love it, but you don't do it, but you want to. And your whole life is the journey of the pursuit of Christ, right? But you're never going to be saved by how good you are. That's a gift of God. Now, I, you know, I'm so glad we're doing this in a series. There's so much more to say. I just hope and pray that maybe some of you have been in church for 30, 40 years and you've never had the click that the click just happened. That you thought, oh man, all these things I've been doing, I thought they were earning favor with God. You know, when I sign up for bumper bag, when I sign up to serve, I thought all of these were earning me merit points. And now Jeff tells me they're not. 
Now, if I go out of here and 1,500 people take their name off the serving list, <laughs> all that does is tell me this. You didn't come to Christ through the low door. Because had you come to Christ through the low door knowing you had nothing, you'd have a change of heart to where you want to serve and you want to give not to earn salvation, but because of the salvation you've already been given. Amen. Now, here's, here's where it ends. This word blessed in the Beatitudes, it does not mean happy. Happy is the one. Happy is the one who. No, all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, every time this word used, Hebrew, Aramaic, all the way up to the time Jesus speaks, this word blessed is a word that means to have God's favor on you. And it's more often than not associated with a hero, David, Solomon, Samson. So heroes were able to do great things. Now, were the heroes of the Bible good people? Oh my goodness, can you say Bathsheba? Okay, so, so they weren't fantastic people, but there was a season in their lives where God did something great out of his grace and mercy, and these people were said to have had the favor of God on them. And they were said to have been blessed. Now, before Jesus will talk to you about what he wants you to do and how he wants you to live, he will first talk about, to you about what you have to be first. Until, you're, until your being is transformed, there's no way you're going to have even any chance of doing any of these things. And part of that being is that you've been transformed by the grace of God. And you know, these are things that you do out of love and appreciation, not out of a, some kind of effort to earn right or favor with God. So you go to heaven. But before he talks about you, the Beatitudes are about him. Don't you see? Who was the first one to be poor in spirit? He was. He humbled himself and became a man, the God of the universe. Why can you and I be rich as kings? Because he became poor, utterly poor. Why can you and I be comforted? Because he mourned over our situation and our plight. Why are you and I inheriting the earth? Because he became meek. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. <sighs> Why are you and I obtaining mercy? Because he got none from Pilate or Herod or the Romans or anybody else, not even his own father. His father turned his back on his own son so he would not have to turn his back on us. So if you don't understand the gospel and you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to cry out and say, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. This is too much. But if you understand the gospel, you're going to say, God, save me through the true understanding of the hero of the Sermon on the Mount who did for me what I could not do for myself, who emptied himself so that I could become filled. Right? I love this paraphrase. The message of Jesus Christ in some is this. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He is doing for himself great things that we cannot even imagine. Therefore, be bold, be unafraid, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have a great gospel. There's nothing else like it in heaven or on earth. It is neither spiritual nor religious. It's not a spiritual experience. It's not religious, a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, it is the still small voice that you do not expect and cannot command. It is the trumpet call of the age to come. It is the word of God, which is indeed at work in all you who believe. The work and word of God is in you because you came in humility and now he is doing a good work in you that he's promised to bring to completion. The spiritually destitute, they're the ones who get the kingdom. And that's just the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. You come 
through a humble door. And when you do, He gives you what you desperately need. Forgiveness. Amen. Father, I thank you and praise you for the power of your word. I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. It opens up a whole new world. It will be a shift in the way that we think about goodness, about righteousness. I pray that there would have been a, a click in the minds of so many that perhaps for the first time their gratitude is overwhelming them to realize what God did through Christ. Father, I pray that our eyes would be open, that we would come to understand that possibly the reason we don't have a passion for these things is because we're still bringing our own merit. And only when we come before Jesus and say, I got nothing, nothing, save me, does he put his spirit in us and change not only what we do, but what we want to do. Our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.